Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding. Today, I have with me my special guest, Dr. Jennifer Thomas. Dr. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, Marie. Great to be back. Yeah, I was just going to say, we had a great time talking about epigenetics a while ago, and it's always fun to talk with you. You absolutely know your stuff, but you're very well grounded. Let me tell the audience a little bit about you, though. Dr. Jenny Thomas is a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine specialist at Aurora Healthcare in Franklin, Wisconsin. She is also a clinical assistant professor of community and family medicine and pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin, that is MCW. She received both her MD and her MPH from MCW. She has been an international board certified lactation consultant since 2003. She currently serves on the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP, Section on Breastfeeding Executive Board after spending several years as the chief of the chapter breastfeeding coordinators. She recently stepped down after six years on the executive board of the Wisconsin chapter of the AAP. A founder and immediate past chairperson of the Wisconsin Breastfeeding Coalition, Dr. Thomas serves on the medical advisory board for the Mother's Milk Bank of the Western Great Lakes. She has received national awards for teaching, advocacy for children, and innovation. She is one of only a few physicians internationally to be recognized as a fellow of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine for her expertise on breastfeeding. Dr. Thomas's interests and research have focused on issues related to the use of social media to support breastfeeding mothers. So, Dr. Thomas, we know that you really know your stuff. We know that you have been absolutely recognized. You pretty much don't play fast and loose with the rules. It's not like I asked some, you know, kind of crazy pediatrician to come on here and talk about numbers. But one of the things that I have found over many years of having been a nurse is that people get pretty married to the numbers, And it's for older people, you know, it's the cholesterol number or whatever. For kids, it tends to be the jaundice number and the hypoglycemia number. So tell me, how married should we be to these magic numbers? And by the way, I teach all over the country. I notice that there are different magic numbers in different hospitals. So talk to us about numbers. Do they matter? (laughs) <laughs> this uh, this is a, a particular love of mine because when I was a second year resident, I had had a really really bad call night where I was up all night and had many many admissions. And I remember I was in the pediatric ICU, and I was standing at the second bed, the second bed, talking <laughs> about one of uh, one of the patients that had come in overnight. And I said that child's white blood count was thirteen point nine. Goodbye. 
attending physician, whom I love to this day, even though he did this, he stopped me. <laughs> And he wrote 13.9 on a piece of paper and threw it up into the air and it landed at his feet. And he said, Jenny, what is that? And I said, <laughs> it was my patient's white blood cell count. And he said, no, it's a random number flying through the air. And I thought, <laughs> all right then. Because after having an episode like that, you really get sort of like, I, I'm very much a stickler for putting a number in context. Mm-hmm. And when we marry a number it's sort of an excuse not to take a look at the baby. And it's so important oh, to yes. me to, to take the, the baby in, in context, all of the different things that it, are happening to that baby, the symptoms they have, so that the number isn't directing care. It's the whole exam that's directing care. And mm-hmm. that's so it, the numbers are important, but they're only part of the, of the piece. Mm, yes. And as Dr. Ruth Lawrence often taught me in my years of working with her, she said, it's one data point. It is. Yeah, it's one data point in one baby. And it doesn't make any sense to take it by itself and treat it by itself. And so when we're talking about jaundice, that is one of those uh, clinical manifestations that is, is is driven almost completely by the numbers. I agree. And I, I think... And I hope that we're going to see that practice change. All right. So, Dr. Thomas, you are the pediatrician for my kid. And the the baby has a number that is making everybody else in the hospital go nuts for his jaundice level at, let's say, day three. Are you on rounds with me this morning? That's so weird. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just, just never know what I'm going to do, huh? Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so everybody's let's, nervous. Let's pick a, a day because we know that especially with with jaundice, it's very day dependent. I'm not sure that's the right word, but you know what I mean. The day, how sure. old the baby uh, yeah. is matters. So what kind of a number gets everybody else in your hospital all with their knickers in a knot? And how are you able to put that number into context? At least let's go for jaundice first here. So when I'm talking to families about jaundice, it's a it's a physiologic process, and I I don't think that that is uh, hard to state because it's nearly every baby that gets some degree of yellow, mm-hmm. and every baby getting something means that there's probably an evolutionary benefit to it, and that yeah. it is a a benefit to some and a risk to others. Yeah. And we're not quite sure that we know enough about bilirubin physiology to say this is the number that causes the problem. So this is a perfect example of when we should be putting that baby in context. There, the, the risk goes along with babies who are sick, whose pH might be a little bit low, who, uh, whose mom may have been infected during the labor um, and that is a scenario where we start to worry that bilirubin can cross into the brain and cause problems. Sure. But for the sure. rest of the kids, it's very difficult for the bilirubin to cross in cross that blood-brain barrier and cause damage if you don't have a lot of those risk factors. And so I talked to the family about different risk factors and when I'm going to worry and when I'm not going to worry um, and and a lot of that is 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 not going to be numbers driven. Too much tell of us, our practice, though. Hmm? Yeah. T- tell us when you're going to worry. 
Oh, I tend not to. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of took you for that kind. Yeah. <laughs> to actually make Billy ribbon, the rest of the species in that we're familiar with, they stop at Billy Verdon, and and right. Billy Rubin actually yep. takes energy from the baby to make. So it's hard to sort of see why the human body would take energy from a baby who needs all their energy to make something that's going to be a brain toxin. And so what we're really looking at is what number is beneficial and what number is harmful. And two papers in 2018 came out that I thought are really going to be helpful in understanding that because those papers showed that bilirubin is probably an antibiotic that kills groupie strep and E. coli. So very important. Uh, beneficial properties for that baby and 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 then again so we're using energy to create bilirubin and it looks like it's an antibiotic in in this research and and so we don't want to treat it too quickly because it looks like it's good to have around and so the typical response is to start phototherapy depending on the gestational age of the baby and how they're eating at about like 16, 17, 18, somewhere around there um, for a bilirubin number. The number 20 has always been, we call it vitnophobia, which is fear of the number 20. Um, (laughs) I don't know if there's any data behind 20 that is actually new. That is based on a number of different studies that were happening in the 1950s. Yeah, I was just going to say, even when I was a young nurse, 20 was like the the scary number. Right, the scary number. But we don't really really know what the scary number is. Uh So we're really, the the practice is now standard of care is to check every baby's bilirubin before they leave the hospital. And I don't know that we know enough about bilirubin to know what to do with those numbers at 24 hours. And what happens, like what we're trying to prevent is kernicterus, which is 100% uh, preventable and a 100% lawsuit if it happens. And and so we're really trying to balance the risk of a devastating neurologic disorder up against up against the beneficial properties of of jaundice. And that that takes an art form, but too much of it right now is numbers driven. And I think one of the things that we have to focus on is stool outputs, which means Absolutely. we have to focus on feeding. We have to take a look at the baby and assess how well they're feeding and then make an assessment as to whether or not that jaundice represents a baby who may not be feeding very well and therefore not stooling. And then have maybe the the emphasis of our treatment being on improving feeding as opposed to putting the kids under lights, which can be um, uh, detrimental to establishing a, a good breastfeeding relationship. All right, so Dr. Thomas, i got to back up a minute because I'm thinking, if memory serves me right, it seems like Dr. DiCarvalho came out with his study, I never can remember whether it's his 1981 study or his 1982 study, but he basically said the more the kids get fed in uh, a day, the more likely that is to result in a lower level of jaundice. Right, because the bilirubin is excreted, excreted through stool. Right. And we know that there are ingredients in colostrum and transitional milk which help the baby stool. So the more milk you get, the more you poop, the less your jaundice is a problem. So, so one so of the how, ways to treat. Hmm? 
So help me with this. If we have known this since the early 1980s, why is it that we're still getting all nuts about these jaundice levels that are probably not worth getting nuts about? Why, why aren't we getting nuts about getting more feeds into the kids? Oh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> um, so we weren't... It's been on a sort of a pendulum. Uh, a lot of the jaundice, significant jaundice that resulted in bilirubin encephalopathy and kernicterus was from RH ISO immunization. So oh, a uh-huh. negative mom and a positive baby. And then Rogam came along and then we sort of said, okay, we got this problem fixed. Yep, and did. then we started hearing more reports about kernicterus. And then in about 2004, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with their guidelines for uh, prevention of bilirubin encephalopathy and kernicterus. And then I, I think we've, we saw things get very conservative after that. Mm. So there was a period of time where we weren't caring quite as much. And now now the, the pendulum is switching. Uh, but I do think that it's uh, we are we have a tendency to be very conservative with this and despite our best educational efforts i i, I think that we are still uh, probably over treating just tons of kids so yeah you, you mentioned uh issues with blood yes. so i want to go back to this for a minute and tell me if i'm just out of date because i have not worked in a newborn nursery in a very long time uh i was always taught when i was young that a bilirubin level that was excessively high in the first 24 hours was likely to be uh, reflective of some sort of illness, some sort of pathology. Would you agree with that or yeah, did they teach me wrong? Bilirubin, high bilirubin levels, uh, noticeable levels of, of bilirubin in the first 24 hours need to be evaluated. Yeah. So that yeah. gets out of the realm of the healthy term infant who might be having issues feeding kind of thing. It's yeah. either hemolysis where the baby breaks down mom's blood cells or um, incompatible blood types or RH isoimmunization, all, all of it on the same theme where there is rapid destruction of red blood cells and too fast of a rise of bilirubin as a result. Um, but yeah, the, the first 24 hours, that's pathology and we have to, we have to evaluate that. Yeah, and, and I'm also hearing you say about this pendulum swinging, that it is because there is this threat of kernicterus and the legal ramifications that make, well, presumably are making uh, doctors a little more conservative. Am I reading you right? Yeah, you are. Spot on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I can really understand that if I were in the physician's shoes, I, I would be fearful but if I'm in the mother's shoes, I'm thinking, oh, for crying out loud, give it a rest, you know? Yeah, it's a, uh, fine, it's a fine line, isn't it? You know, like, yeah. and it's one of those things when we talk about bilirubin and blood sugars, you know, it's all it's all brain disease, right? So if right. we don't treat this right, your baby, baby's going to have brain disease. And, you know, for some babies, that's absolutely true. Um, and we have to be very careful that sure. we don't... Uh, just say, oh, it's elevated because the baby's breastfeeding or it's elevated because of blah, 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 it's normal. We really do have to know the risk factors that are involved in uh, in the creation of too much bilirubin that might lead to neurologic issues. But that's rare. It is, yeah. It's very rare compared to the 
to the sheer amount of kids who are getting treated for it right now. I think the rec- I think that the last time that I saw what was happening, it's about 25% of uh, newborns that are term that are getting um, phototherapy. Oh, good grief. Oh, that, wow. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Dr. Jennifer Thomas has way more to say, and you need to stay with us. We will be right back after this short break. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with pediatrician Dr. Jenny Thomas. Dr. Thomas, I think you really gave us a real eye-opener here about the, the jaundice, the numbers, the context, and I think that you were clear in saying that there is perhaps a benefit, and we've all been 
not thinking about that as related to uh, uh, the uh, management of jaundice. And I know that you're not saying, oh, yes, there is. You're saying there could be. And there are at least a couple of papers that are giving us pause there. But I want to go and talk about low blood sugars because I have gone back and I have read the research done by Dr. Kornbloth since about 1965. And then he came out with this really great paper in 2000, which reiterated basically everything he'd ever said in all of his previous papers, which was, we don't really know what normal, what a normal blood sugar is in a newborn. So how do we know what is hypo? So is that still the case? And where do you stand with that? Yeah, it's uh, if you take a look at the um, policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics on this particular subject, they don't actually use hypoglycemia in the title. They call it uh, glucose homeostasis in the newborn period for exactly that reason, because there's a lot of debate over what a normal blood sugar is. And so talking about what low blood sugar is then becomes problematic. We have to know what normal is before we start defining abnormal. Yeah. So, can you sort of pull together for us <clears throat> what the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP, says and what the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine says? They come at it from a slightly different standpoint, but can you break that down for us, knowing that we've got, and by the way, we've got people from around the world listening. I know that there have got to be people uh, outside of the U.S. who say, oh, you Americans are all getting nuts about something. That's just not a whole great big deal. But anyway, uh, can you break this down for us? I think this is, a, I've been asked to speak all, all over the world, and this has been an issue that um, doesn't matter what country I'm in, it looks like it's a problem. Oh, is it? Um, okay. Right. Yeah, I just have to change the the units for the, for oh. the blood sugars. Cause <laughs> right. <laughs> we, do, we have not quite figured out how to use the right units in the United States. So um, the essentially what happens is that the newborn has a period of time where we expect the blood sugar to be lower than what it would be in an adult. And what that happen, what happens as a result of that lower blood sugar is that there is a cascade of events uh, that takes place that prompts the creation of different fuels. So in the adult, we are completely dependent on glucose for our brain to work. Uh, and But in the, in the newborn period, that lower glucose stimulates the production of ketone bodies and lactate wow. and pyruvate and other fuels that could be entered into the Krebs cycle. And oh my God, every time I say the Krebs cycle, I'm like, <laughs> I promise not to use that in the future. <laughs> and here I am. So I promise. I, I can hear you slapping your hand there. <laughs> I to review the Krebs cycle. But anyway, so it goes into the Krebs cycle, and I won't say that one more time, but, <laughs> and it creates energy for the baby, and it's usually for a short period of time. And then there's a, a wonderful, like, secondary cascade that happens. So the ketone bodies can then be used for the creation of phospholipids that help with myelin in the brain. And the ketone bodies can also be used um, as a precursor to the phospholipids, and surfactant is one of those that we... Oh. Um, are excited about. And so that, that cascade of low blood sugar creating alternative fuels, creating downstream benefits for the baby is supposed to happen. That is normal 
physiology for that newborn that helps them transition from placental energy to energy coming from human milk. And so trying to define what glucose is necessary is tough if it's only one of several fuels that the newborn is using to to make this transition um, into the um, I'm going to be breathing air world. So yeah. it's yeah. a it's a very complicated um, uh, set of metabolic processes, but a beautiful one uh, for for downstream um, effects for the newborn. So is it safe to say that if a baby is truly uh, I, I'm almost hesitant to have this word come out of my mouth. But if the baby is truly hypoglycemic, then maybe it is because he is not a healthy newborn. Right. So we expect that the baby is going to be able to come out, have the placental circulation stopped, right? We, we right. cut the baby off from the placenta. We did. And really, yep. that baby should be able to transition into the world uh, without any difficulties. And the, when the babies can't do that, then we have to start looking for reasons why the baby can't do that. And at least one of those reasons is that the baby's an infant of a mom who had diabetes. Sure. Or that sure. baby is small for gestational age and may yep. not have the ability to create those extra fuels. But we're looking to make sure that first and foremost, that the baby's not sick when they, if they can't make that transition uh, into the world. Can you paint a picture for us about what their symptoms look like when they are truly not having enough glucose on board? Yeah, so what, we, what we're looking at is, is to try to define who's got symptoms and who doesn't. Yep. So asymptomatic babies make that transition from the inside the womb to outside the womb, and they get on and they nurse, and the world is a good place, and, and they don't have to be screened. They transitioned into the world just fine. The babies who don't transition into the world just fine have a lot of symptoms that look like sepsis. Um, So they shake, they can't maintain um, their body temperatures, they don't feed well. Uh, Some of the kids will have frank seizures. um, But the symptomatic glucose, low glucose is what we're trying to prevent in those babies because it looks like it's the babies with symptoms who run the risk of long-term illness. Mm-hmm. or long-term mm-hmm. consequences to having low blood sugar. So I want everybody to hear Dr. Thomas loud and clear. She is saying here that when the baby is exhibiting symptoms, that is something to worry about. But the numbers themselves, in the circles where I walk, there's a magic number of 40 or 47 or whatever it is. And somebody yeah, one of the hospitals I was at was 70. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. good luck yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> The first time I heard something like that, I'm like, what What are you talking about? This yeah, is nuts. I think that's going to be a little unreasonable. But Where yeah, it depends. Yeah. So the AAP, um, their, their statement said first four hours, um, a glucose above 25 is good. And then after the first four hours, they want it higher than 40. Um, but hospitals do um, lots of different things. I know. Oh, yeah. Uh, in places where I've practiced, it's been 40 or 50 or, you know, it's tough, too, because all but the most recent glucometers for bedside checking of glucose are really meant, I think, to be accurate in the adult range. Absolutely. And and, yeah. and can't really be that specific in the pediatric range. So it's, uh, it's tough. I, it, what we want is to... 
if there's a low sugar, like the baby to eat first, and then also confirm it with a blood level rather than like a finger poke to right. make sure that we're treating, we're actually treating something that's low. But again, this is, you can't take a baby, look at the number, because the number might be wrong, and then say, you need to have glucose gel or formula or or donor milk or whatever your hospital is lucky enough to have, just because that number is, is low. The, yeah. the emphasis from the AAP was symptoms. Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to ask the $64 question here that people always ask me. And that is, well, Marie, some of these kids come out and they don't nurse very well or they don't nurse at all. And how long can they go? How long can they go? How long can they go without nursing? Because aren't you worried that their glucose is going to be in their shoes? Uh, I'm more worried if I'm an employee of the hospital because I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble. But... uh, can you put any light on that? I'm thinking, for instance, of somebody like Dr. Bergman's study where he watched the kids, I think, for five hours, but he didn't watch them after five hours. So we don't know what happened after five yeah, hours. Yeah, I think that that's probably our rate-limiting study right there. But we have to have some faith in our species, right? <laughs> like that yeah. most kids can come out. And I, I think the importance here is really on the skin-to-skin and that golden Absolutely. hour and... and yeah. In, for the kids that where it's acceptable, if the kids are sick, all of this is done. It's off the table. Sure. If Absolutely. this is a healthy term newborn and we put them skin to skin with mom for that golden hour, that should facilitate a lot of opportunities to breastfeed and um, and and really uh, work on helping the baby make that transition. So if we have a baby that doesn't transition in that first hour and tends not to want to feed, then we have to start looking to see if there's anything besides a difficult delivery and potentially um, other birth interventions like epidurals that may have made it difficult. C-sections are really difficult for the babies to sort of wake up and be like, I'm sorry, you wanted me to what? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they they even look at you like that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to get born. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Thomas, if you were running the world and if you could run the hospital, how long would you write into the hospital's protocol for how long the babies could go, presuming that they are full-term, healthy, they don't have any of these uh, oddball issues, in your estimation, what would be a good thing to do? Um, I think a golden hour plus, uh, as you mentioned, Dr. Bergman's study. So a, a golden hour plus hours afterwards. I don't think the mom can wait. I think if the baby doesn't want to nurse in that first hour that we should start getting her going. Um, but I think the baby's got some time. Um, it, when I was in my residency, way back in the 20th century, we didn't really worry about it too much in the first 24 hours. And now, (laughs) you know, in my hospital system, it's can't even wait two hours for things. So um, there's got to be a happy medium in between there. Yeah, I can tell that I'm older than you are because... much. <laughs> well, when I was young, it was, we got to get those kids to eat within four hours. 
And then later it was, we've got to get them to eat within 24 hours. And now it seems to me that there's more emphasis on got to got to get the baby going within a couple of hours or three or four hours or something. And let's face it. Time limits. We start, and when we start establishing time limits like that, we start to make the moms, you know, Nervous. doubt what they're doing. That's yep. positively not nice and right. really works against oxytocin and her, her whole experience of motherhood. And until we have better data as to what, uh, what, what constitutes too long? I, I don't, I, you know, a lot of times, I guess everything about this, bilirubin, blood sugars, how long we can wait before something happens. A lot of that has to do with our language. Like, mm. how do we, how do we explain that to mom? And can we explain it to her without saying your baby's going to wind up brain damaged? Right. Can we say this is, this is part of the transition. This is part of being a baby. This is, you know, we, we saw symptoms and this is why we're going to treat it. But like working with her to understand what's happening with the baby and not really like talking about the language of extreme harm. And yes. I think that there, no matter what number you pick in any one of these scenarios, that there are ways of presenting it and there are ways that are 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 undermining to the whole process of, of breastfeeding. And I, and at least some of this needs to come down to um, considerate, kind, uh, informed language. Well, I'm sorry to say, but often I have heard this presented as, and I quote, we've got to give your baby some formula because otherwise it's going to be dangerous. Yeah, or they're going to damage your, yeah, I've yeah. heard it. Yeah. I, I see a mother who hears uh, dangerous, and that word just freaks her out, and understandably so. But well, then she then there's a there's a response where she doesn't necessarily trust her body any longer, right. and right. and really we're trying to empower these people that are in our care for about forty eight hours in the hospital, in my care for about eighteen years, and I. I really want them to enjoy parenting and be empowered and understand the rationale behind decisions that we make as a team. And and if they don't understand, then I haven't done my job. And if they understand so well that they're frightened, then I have... I've, I've older, oversold it, I think, because yeah. for the great majority of kids, these are normal physiologic transformations that happen when you go from an in utero to an outside world development. Mm. Yeah, transition to uh, extra uterine life. Somehow I got that early in my training, and I always try to remember that we're asking this baby to make a major change. Hello. Probably the the riskiest in their whole life. In their whole life. Yeah. They start off in the world making the transition that is going to be the hardest that they will ever make. Ever make. It's just amazing. Breathing air and using glucose and making extra fluids and having your having your enzymes know what to do when it comes to bilirubin and it's a tremendous it's just it's a it's a miracle that these these kids transition as well as they do as they do it's a big switcheroo hey everybody i'm moravian kuso i'm here today with dr jennifer thomas we will be right back after this short break Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. 
Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm here today with pediatrician Dr. Jenny Thomas. And we have been talking about numbers and how numbers are just numbers unless they're put into context. So, Dr. Thomas, one of the things that makes me really nuts is that everybody goes a little bit nuts. Maybe not as much so now as we did a couple of years ago. We've got a little more data, uh, protocols that are a little more relaxed, but birth weight, everybody goes nuts with if babies have not, um, well, we don't really expect the newborns to gain weight in the first couple of days, but if they lose weight and if they lose 10%, everybody basically goes nuts. So, Talk to us about the 10% number 
and uh, what you think of that and what you think it really means in real life. So if I asked you, let's see, to um, lose 10% of your weight in the next 72 hours, I'm always curious, what, what are you going to do? You know, like, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to do I'm yeah. going to do ex- exercise. I'm right. going to uh, hope you get gastroenteritis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm going to chop off an arm. <laughs> right. But when it's the baby, apparently the baby can lose 10% of their birth weight by starving in 72 hours. I don't quite get it, but actually 10% of uh, l- losing 10% of your birth weight is quite common, especially among kids who were born uh, via C-section. And there are a number of different reasons for that to happen. Some of them are, some of them are normal. Some of them are not anything we have to worry about. And some of them are real and and pretty scary. And we have to be able to be, uh, to have the skill set that's going to be able to differentiate among the all those kids who's got the weight loss that is dangerous. But all right, so that's the the context, right? It's not the number; it's the context. Okay, so I got to tell you that it was several years ago, I want to say 2011 or so, I was blown away with Carolyn Chantry's study that basically, isn't that a fabulous study? I read that and I'm like, oh, this is great, because I felt that her study substantiated what I thought, which is the baby is born. We put him on the scales. We assume that that is his baseline weight, uh, weight. But if we've pumped his mother full of IV fluid, doesn't it make sense that that kid has some extra fluid on board that is actually not reflective of who he really is? Can you address that? Yeah, I really love it when we give enough IV fluids to push the kids into the large for gestational age category <laughs> so that we have to check right. their blood sugar. Um, yep. But Carolyn Chantry's study is, is one that I, I talk about um, quite frequently because she does a very good job of showing yeah. how that 10% weight loss is, 7 to 10% weight loss is, is, is quite common in the first three days. But then when you take a look at the babies out in the community at day seven, a lot of those kids have regained their birth weight quite nicely. And I think one of the issues that we're seeing more and more is that there is a disconnect between who's taking care of the baby in the hospital and who's taking care of the baby in the in the community, oh. and that there is uh, a sort of a need to sort of wrap the baby up in a nice little package so that we can deliver them to the community knowing that they aren't losing weight anymore, or at least it has been addressed. Mm-hmm. If So I'm lucky enough in most cases to take care of my own patients in the hospital and then see them again two to three days after discharge. And I can say, you know, they've lost weight, but these are the parameters that we're looking at to make sure that it's not weight loss that is, um, is dangerous. So again, we're looking for uh, the context and I don't think you can starve yourself to 10% weight loss. I don't, I don't think that can happen, but you can lose a lot of weight in those first couple of days. And then what we have to look at is sort of the rate of the weight loss. So did this take place over the first 24 hours, like you would expect somebody losing a ton of fluid would have? Um, or was this a gradual decline over three days, which is different? Um, or, and is the baby stooling? Because we've, we've come back to this a couple of times, but yeah. stool out. Yeah. 
is really a good measurement of how much the baby is taking in. The more milk they take in, the more um, human milk oligosaccharides they get, HMOs that they get, and the HMOs are meant to work on the level of the gut. And so not a lot of them are absorbed. Some of them are, but not a lot of them are absorbed. So the more that you get, more milk you get, the more of the HMOs that you get, the more poop you get. And if we have a baby who's stooled a million times in the hospital and has lost 10% of their birth weight, that is a very different story than a baby who is not effectively latched and who yes. is not stooling. And again, it comes down to, can we fix the feeding? Like, we do we just do we just throw something at the baby because it's 10% or can we really work on fixing the feeding? Because if we fix the feeding, then the weight loss issue is going to resolve. Well, you know, people get upset with me when they say, well, Marie didn't answer my question. Right. I didn't. What I said was it depends on the whole clinical picture. So when you see that the baby has lost weight and, oh, by the way, the baby is sleepy and, oh, by the way, when the baby does get up to breast, he doesn't do very much. And if he does, the mother's got sore nipples because he hasn't got a good latch and on and on and on. And to me, when you see all of that, it's like nothing in this picture is reassuring here. Right. Yeah. And the and the ten percent weight loss then becomes part of a picture of non reassuring. Exactly. But exactly. yeah, I, I've had kids where they've lost ten percent and I've not you know, there's charted, you know, three stools in three days. That's that's not helpful. Um and that's that is a baby who not only, you know, may need some calories, but definitely needs intervention with feeding. And there isn't really another time in the pediatric world where if a kid is an inpatient and not feeding well, that we will still send them home. And that's uh, mm. that's one of those things that's it's it's quite frustrating mm. to me because in order to get them home, they have to take something other than their mom's own milk. And and that if a mom has come to us and said we, we want to breastfeed and we we owe her whatever whatever energy that we can give her to help her meet that goal. Um, and I, I don't know if the goal of discharge is so much more important than the goal of the baby eating. I have to work that out in my head. But I, I really do think that the baby should be eating before we send them home. Well, I, it was quite a while ago. Gee, I can't remember now, but certainly more than a decade ago when the AAP came out and said the baby needs to have two good feedings before he is, is discharged. But I don't think that always happens. What do you think? Or well, do you think they just give them the bottle and consider it I a good don't know. Feeding? I I I don't know what I think what a good feeding is really depends on who's looking. Who's watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. I don't know. I just yeah. would I want the the moms to feel good about their nursing experience and I think again, to, so <clears throat> personal story here, my third baby, I'm a I'm a I've an IBCLC by now. <laughs> And almost and a remember, confident I'm, pediatrician. Right, sort of. Yep. Yeah. You and didn't just fall off the turnip truck no, there. Yeah. I didn't. Yep. And it was my third third baby that I was breastfeeding, and I was doing fine. I was reading a book at midnight and he was sleeping on my shoulder, and my nurse came in and she said, How's breastfeeding going? And I can't I you know, I feel bad for her. She had me as a patient. But <laughs> I said I looked down at my son and I said, He's going fine. And she seriously went, Good, because he's lost 10% of his birth weight. And she like booking out of the room. <laughs> and I was like, ah. And so I I woke him up and I fed him. And he was like 13 ounces above birth weight when he was like six days old. But I, <laughs> I, 
I started crying. And I thought, you know, if this happens to somebody who should know better, like this is this is tough. It's tough to be fed that information when you're so vulnerable and you want to do such a good job at, at motherhood. And I just thought, oh, you're only 36 hours old and I've blown it. So, you know, it was it was a tough thing for us. Well, you know, I remember teaching one day and I said to the group something like, it's very difficult to instill confidence in a mother. If we had confidence pills, I would be passing them out because I really believe that giving people confidence is hugely important, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, to give people confidence. And a hand went up in the back of the room and this nurse said something that just just really struck me. She said, I agree, Marie, but it's very easy to take confidence away. Yeah, it is. It's really easy to disrupt. And that just stopped me in my tracks. I So what I've been telling families, I used to say that I wanted one stool on day one and two stools on day two. And then people would say, what if they stool at night? And I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very literal. Um, and then I would say, okay, one stool in the first 24 hours and two stools in the second 24 hours. And then you'd get the kid who, you know, pooped six times in the first 24 hours. So now I'm asking uh, my families for yellow stool on day four if it's a vaginal delivery and on day five if they've been born via C-section and that the weight is neat and it can help inform things, but it's going to be part of the picture that we look at, not always the total picture. All right. So I want to ask you this. You are confident as a physician. You have had more than one baby. By now, you kind of got the mother thing down. You know <laughs> how to breastfeed. You are a person that should be presumably a little more together than the the poor gal that comes and she's shaking in her boots. You know the type I mean. So if if you're the mother in these situations, how do you advocate for yourself? And how do you say, give me a break, just just let me breastfeed the way God intended? What how do you do this? Oh, I think it would be fun to talk to some of my patients. But I I <laughs> I um if I'm the mom, hopefully you've gotten uh, breastfeeding classes and you have uh, done your best to get educated from whatever resources uh, speak to you. And, and then when these issues arise in your hospital stay, that you can have a conversation uh, with the people that are taking care of you. And I think that the paternalistic uh, way that physicians have dealt with people in the past is is hopefully gone and that this is a, a team decision and that you should be able to ask and get answers that are not over the top, you know, harm, harm language, an, yes. a, a balanced answer that can help you make the, the best decision uh, for your kids. And if that is not happening, I would step up and ask um, because we are all in the service industry and and we really, um, and, and, you know, for, for people like me as a pediatrician, this isn't just a 48-hour stay. This is, you know, we're going to go on a decades-long journey here. So I want right. to make sure we start off on the right foot. But ask, you have, these are, these are, 
these are procedures. A lot of these things to start phototherapy and to do blood draws and such, they're procedures and you need to be able to have informed consent. You need to know why we're doing things. And and the the thing that makes me the saddest is when people feel like they were bullied into making a yes. decision that, that didn't uh, sit with their parenting um, goals. See, I, I, I really hear you there because I do see parents that are bullied into it and they feel like they can't, as some people have said to me, I didn't want to buck the system. I didn't want to buck traffic, I, you know. And I'm saying, wait, wait a minute. This is your child. And from this day forward, as a parent, sometimes, honestly, you are going to have to buck the system. And so much of this is better understanding, better conversations. And you've got to stand up for yourself. You just do. Yeah. In some of these scenarios that we've been talking about, the baby is sick. And sure. some of those things are going to go fast and furious. But in otherwise healthy term newborns, there's time for discussion. And those those discussions are important because it, the more empowered you are as a parent and the more that you know as to why we're making the decisions we are, I think the more uh, uh, that you can and feel confident about your parenting skills and feel confident about the caregivers and, you know, the decisions you've made so far. Absolutely. Dr. Thomas, we have only a minute or so left. Are there any closing thoughts that you want to give to either the parents or the providers here today? I want every woman to meet her breastfeeding uh, goals, whatever Mm -hmm. they may be. Mm -hmm. And I don't want providers especially pediatricians to be the reason that you didn't meet your goals so I wish that everybody that uh, is listening that we put the numbers in context and you understand the context and you can make informed decisions about your child's health care well said absolutely well said Uh, as you know this hour always goes too fast but I would like to thank pediatrician Dr. Jennifer Thomas for being with us today. Dr. Thomas, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me back again. For those of you who are interested, Dr. Thomas did a previous show with me, and it was on epigenetics. It was one of the most fascinating uh, shows that I I learned so much from that, and I promise you she will use language that the ordinary person can understand. And I would also say if you're interested in more Dr. Thomas, you can go to uh, Dr. Jen for kids that's the numeral for dr jen for kids and if you want more marie that's easy too that is mariebiancuso.com now you have to use your spelling skills though it's m-a-r-i-e-b-i-a-n-c-u-z-z-o i will have more information uh some blog posts and plenty more and upcoming shows as well so everybody uh thank you so much thanks for listening without you We don't have a show, so thank you for being our listeners. And remember, between now and next week, and for as long as you wish, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week... Do its best for you and your baby.